What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ukraine's military is much larger and better equipped than it was when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. But if Russia were to attack now, and hints that they might just keep mounting up, it would still be a woeful and worrisome one-sided fight. And the numbers are in once again from our sister company, The Economist Intelligence Unit. We've got the latest list of the world's most expensive places to live. And at the top this year is a first-time winner. But first... On Sunday, Jack Dorsey tweeted, I love Twitter. The next day, he quit his job as the company's chief executive. Mr. Dorsey has already left the company, returning to great fanfare in 2015. Twitter is one of the fastest ways to say something to the world. It's also the fastest way to see what the entire world is saying about any topic. This time, he wrote that his departure was tough, but that the company needed to break away from its founders. For those of us who have been covering Twitter for many years, there was some humor to this because Jack Dorsey was brought back in 2015 as the permanent CEO with the rationale that it was up to a founder to fix Twitter. Alexandra Suwich-Bass is our senior correspondent for politics, technology and society. But Jack Dorsey is now leaving, um, signaling a new era for Twitter, potentially, um, and an end to the myth that founders are necessarily the best people to save companies. And there's some suggestion that this has something to do with investor pressure on him. What do you make of that? Twitter stock has not performed terribly well during this past year at a time that a lot of investors are looking at tech companies for growth um, and that advertisers are looking to invest more in digital ad products. Investors have just felt like Dorsey has become pretty hands-off in recent years. He talked about moving to Africa. He's been working remotely in French Polynesia. That was true when Twitter booted Trump off. He was working remotely on on this private island. I think a real question for investors is whether a part-time CEO could really help turn around a company that needed full-time attention. When Jack Dorsey was brought back to run Twitter in 2015, he had already started a payments company called Square, also based in the Bay Area, and was running that. And so the deal that he struck with Twitter's board was that he would devote part of his time to Twitter part of his time to square. I think that's really proven to be an untenable proposition. So who's the replacement? 
Jack Dorsey's replacement is Parag Agrawal, who until recently was the chief technology officer at Twitter. He's now going to be CEO. We operate at a massive scale with a relatively small team. Our strategy is to use the best tools to make our teams as productive as they can be. He has a PhD from Stanford in computer engineering. And this really matters at a company where tech chops are critical to the company's success. Until recently, Agrawal has been overseeing some technical upgrades. So he's been moving Twitter to the cloud and cobbling together the infrastructure, the back-end infrastructure. So things moved quite seamlessly. While it sounds geeky and boring, that's quite critical to Twitter's success and ability to launch products uh, rapidly. And what about looking forward then? Do we have a sense for what Twitter's new chief executive will, will get down to work doing? In the near term, I think Twitter's main challenge is how to sell more advertising and how to get more users. And I covered the company. I wrote our first profile of Twitter in 2014. At that time, the CEO, Dick Costello, was going to investors right before Twitter was going public and saying that Twitter was going to have the largest audience in the world. That clearly has not happened. It has around 200 million daily active users, and it has not sold advertising to the extent that investors were thinking it would be able to achieve. So I think in the near term, Twitter needs to figure out how to make more money. In the longer term, I think there's a question of what the Twitter platform will look like. And Mr. Agrawal was in charge of a research project called Blue Sky, trying to figure out whether or not the Twitter platform could be decentralized so that users would be able to create their own moderation decisions and apply algorithms to promote content. That will be one area of experimentation. Another is how to integrate crypto potentially into the platform for payments and the like. And then I think there will also be a question of whether Twitter will be able to be used more as an e-commerce platform and be able to get a cut of revenue for sales that it helps facilitate and not just be a platform for consuming information and a media technology company. And what about the political scene in which all of this is going on? As you say, Mr. Dorsey was around uh, during the Trump presidency. What, what what sort of reception do you think his replacement might get in Washington? I think it's pretty fair to assume that the Biden administration is going to press hard against tech companies, and so is Congress. The question of mergers and acquisitions is going to be an interesting one. Twitter has grown historically by buying companies. Um, and I think that under the Biden administration, that's going to be looked at much more skeptically. We have an activist in the form of Lena Khan as the commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission. And we have other people who have expressed great skepticism about previous enforcement regimes being too lax about allowing tech companies to buy fledgling startups. So I think as it relates to Twitter potentially buying other companies, it will be more limited. There's also the question of whether Twitter might be bought. There had been some speculation that Salesforce and other companies might be interested in a Twitter acquisition. Again, it's harder to imagine a large tech deal being pulled off in today's political environment. And and what about Mr. Dorsey? It's it's just to to full-time attention on, on Square now? He will now be leaving as CEO, but will be remaining on the board until 2022. It's 
not entirely clear how much influence he'll be able to have while still on the board. But as of a year from now, he'll be gone. I think the big point to make about Dorsey's departure at Twitter is while we're seeing the elevation of a technical talent in the form of uh, Parag Agrawal, we're also seeing the myth uh, and elevation of the founder be busted. Jack Dorsey was brought back in part because Silicon Valley feels so strongly and has historically felt so strongly about the power of the founder to be the one who can help save a company. And I think that myth was uh, was furthered during Steve Jobs' time, during his return to Apple. Twitter has not been such a success story under Jack Dorsey. And so I think that this experience at Twitter may give some investors pause in wanting a visionary founder to come back to save a company. Sometimes what you need is a potential outsider or someone who will really rethink the way that things have been done to take the company to the next level. Alexandra, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Tensions between Russia and Ukraine are rising once again. On Friday, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky told journalists that the country had uncovered plans for a coup backed by Russia that would take place today or tomorrow. On the border, Ukrainian soldiers say they're unafraid of a possible Russian offensive, that they're more prepared by the day. For Ukraine, the 2014 annexation of Crimea was something of a wake-up call. In the years since, it's been bulking up and modernizing its army, readying for what could quickly become the most serious conflict in Europe since 1945. But it's unclear whether that preparation for war will be enough to ensure peace. The Ukrainian military has been fighting a certain kind of war for seven years now. But war of a different kind looming on its border could change everything. Richard Enzer writes about Eastern Europe for The Economist. We are talking about extremely unusual movements of Russian troops within its own borders, not far from Ukraine, close to or more than 100,000 troops, making Ukraine and the West extremely nervous. But there has been tension at the border for years. We've seen Russia mass troops and then remove them at the border already. Why is there this sense that real conflict is, is now so, so possibly real? Indeed, Ukraine has been at war for seven years. And indeed, in the spring of this year, we saw a very similar buildup of troops very close to Ukraine's border of 100,000 troops. Most of them haven't really gone away. However, a couple of things are changing now that has got the US a little bit nervous. These troops are moving around during the nighttime, which suggests that Russia is trying to get itself an element of surprise, which is not something that was happening in April. And Ominously, there are some reports from some American intelligence officials that the Russian military is starting to call up tens of thousands of its reserve troops, which is not something that it has done on that scale since the end of the Soviet Union. So if you are inclined to trust those reports, you should be worried. 
And how ready would the Ukrainian military be if Russia were to launch a proper attack? Well, back in 2014, as Russia moved to annex Crimea and to back some of the separatists in eastern Ukraine, Ukraine only had 6,000 combat-ready troops, which is unbelievable. And you talk to people who were at the front line fighting in Donetsk at the time, and they will tell you that the the uniforms they had were, were simply unwearable for for real military combat. And what actually happened is volunteers would go to other countries like Germany and Britain, buy secondhand military uniforms and ship them back one by one into Ukraine and, and bring them to the front line. Since then, things have gotten a lot better. The number of troops who are ready for, for combat has increased drastically. We're talking about a quarter of a million professional troops, close to a million people in reserve, and crucially, hundreds of thousands of people with some experience of being at the front line These soldiers are better trained. They exercise in conjunction with NATO members like the US and like Turkey and the the UK. They've received better guns, better equipment, better technology, better radios and radars for communication and, and intelligence. It's night and day, the difference between now and seven years ago. Much improved, as you say, but how would that larger, better trained, better equipped force deal with a serious Russian attack, though? These improvements are fantastic news if your plan is to continue fighting trench warfare against separatists that Russia can't afford to help in their own name, with no planes, no tanks. This is something you can live with. However, Russia's military has been improving too, and they've been practicing a lot in the skies, in Syria, that they have a lot of experience in fighting and winning wars. If we do end up in a situation where these two militaries combine, it's, it's not a question. The, it's not going to be pretty and the Ukrainian forces are going to suffer and, and suffer quite rapidly. Which is why some, so many people are worried and why so many people are looking for an off-ramp to these tensions for a, a, a diplomatic solution. I think most people remain very, very optimistic that some kind of political settlement is possible here. Well, what does that look like? What are other powers trying to do to stop that war from breaking out? So for the West, this means giving a lot of warnings. It means saying that there will be very grave consequences if Russian troops enter Ukraine. But the problem is that nobody really believes that this version of the West and this version of the United States is about to sacrifice the lives of their own troops to to defend eastern Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO member. It would love to be. It hasn't gotten there yet. And indeed, the very membership of NATO and the prospect of that is one of the things that has made Vladimir Putin so nervous and one of the things he's trying to stop. And, and what do you think Russia's, in particular Vladimir Putin's, uh, intention here is desire? Why, why is this still such a flashpoint? Well, Russia has enjoyed for decades and centuries a certain kind of relationship with Ukraine. It's been a geostrategic buffer between Russia and, and the West and Western Europe. It has been also a kind of brother, you know, two nations that have been in friendship. And Russia quite liked it when things were like that. So watching this westward dash from Ukraine since 2014 has not been pleasant for for Vladimir Putin. Ukraine is continuing to move to the west. With every passing year, its cooperation with NATO grows a little bit closer, and the political consensus around this westward shift is hardening. So that's going to make Vladimir Putin nervous. It's going to test his patience, and it's going to make him wonder whether he needs a plan B. And maybe this troop buildup, whether it ends in something military or something diplomatic, maybe it's his, his latest gambit in trying to make sure that Ukraine doesn't get away. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason.
we'd still like to hear from you. If you haven't already, head over to our survey and tell us what you like and what you don't about the intelligence. Go to economist.com slash intelligence survey or click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks a lot. Wherever you live in the world, it's pretty likely that you've noticed prices going up and up. What you might not know is how your city or your nearest city measures up to others. Don't worry, the Economist Intelligence Unit has the rankings. Its World Cost of Living Index compares the cost of fuel and clothing and food and a pile of other goods and services to work out the most expensive places to live. Its latest assessment out today has a certain city taking the top spot for the very first time. The inflation rate of the prices that we track is the fastest we've recorded for the past five years. Anna Nichols is The Economist Intelligence Unit's industry director. So it had accelerated beyond the pre-pandemic rate, rising by about 3.5% a year on year in local currency terms for these last uh, survey. And that compares with just 1.9% last year, for example. So it shows how the pandemic and the supply chain disruptions that we've been hearing about have pushed up the cost of living across the world's main cities. And so how has all this shaken out? What is the world's most expensive city? Well, it's the first time this has happened, but Tel Aviv actually topped the ranking for the first time ever. So it's now the most expensive city in the world to live in. It is normally in the top 10, but it's the first time it's been in top place. And if you look at the actual data, the rise of Tel Aviv mainly reflects its currency. The shekel has been really strong against the US dollar. We measure our prices against New York City, so the US dollar exchange rate matters a lot. But there's also been quite a lot of price increases in Tel Aviv itself. So it's particularly an expensive place to buy alcohol. Personal care items are really expensive. Recreation, also expensive. So actually it ranked in the top third uh, for all of our, our major spending categories. So first time to the top of the list means that something was there and isn't anymore. What, what got knocked off the top? What got knocked off was Paris. Uh, so Paris, it only fell down to second place. So it was in second place along with Singapore this year. And then it was followed by Zurich and Hong Kong. And in general, uh, European and Asian cities were towards the top of the rankings. That was partly because of the currency rise, but it's also just because uh, price rises generally in those markets. We've seen in Europe, there have been quite big supply chain problems. In contrast, because the US dollar fell slightly against those currencies, most of the US cities fell slightly in the rankings. So they tend to be kind of in the top to middle of the rankings. And that was partly because the government responded to the pandemic in the US by injecting a lot more money into the economy. And that helped to hold down some of the prices and also the value of the US dollar. And in terms of how quickly things are changing, do you think these sharp increases in prices will will continue? We are expecting quite strong inflation next year. We're expecting consumer price inflation to average 4.3% in 2022. That's down from 5.1% this year, but it's still substantially higher than during 2020 and also before the pandemic. So if supply chain disruptions die down and lockdowns ease as expected then prices should start to moderate around um, the middle of 2022. However, the emergence of the Omicron variant does throw open the possibility that supply chain disruptions might last a little bit longer. In any case, um, we do this survey around August, September 
Um, so I would expect prices to have moderated a little, but maybe not much by then. So not a lot of relief then for the people of, of Tel Aviv and, and the rest at the top of the list? No, not an awful lot of relief. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.